When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. Today I'm talking to Dr. Andrew Snedden, a social and cultural historian and a lecturer in international history at Ulster University, where he specializes in both the history of Britain and Ireland, but also within that, the history of witchcraft and magic, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, and his new book, Representing Magic in Modern Ireland, Belief, History, and Culture. Dr. Snedden, thanks so much for joining us. No problem, problem. Uh, yeah. So your book um, obviously talks about witchcraft and magic um, and makes an argument that might seem kind of counterintuitive, that, that magic and witchcraft are things that don't go away in the modern world, but actually survive and thrive in the modern world. Could you start by explaining how and why that is the case? Well, um, I think that I argue that following the two centuries after the repeal of the Witchcraft Act in 1821, that Ireland is not disenchanted or experiences a decline in magic, as you said. Um, I think that the beliefs and the practices and the traditions concerning popular magic, and we can unpack that, and witchcraft, harmful um, magic, as it were. They, they developed and adapted to modernity, you know, um, and the things associated with modernity uh, to retain cultural currency, as it were. For example, magical healers continued uh, to be used in combination with increasing institutionally based medicine and divination they found lost in stolen goods or cattle survived even when there was, you know, a competition from a growing uh, professionalised police force. You know, they, they don't have to be binaries, magic uh, and modernity, science and technology, religion, uh, or, or even secularisation. You know, they, they can work together, you know. And I think that we're increasingly seeing that the supernatural doesn't go away with the Enlightenment. It just changes shape. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you talk about, um, looking more specifically at, at witchcraft rather than magic, is how these accusations um, are very are, are fairly prevalent, and then they become bound up with with broader social conflicts. Can you tell us more about how that is happening, and and are there any kind of good examples that highlight witchcraft accusations as a form of social conflict? Well, I think they're always, I mean, I think maybe what you're getting at here is um, they become like political conflict or, or social conflict. But witchcraft accusations in the early modern period during the, the time when 50,000 people were put to death 
were always bound up and the trials themselves with wider social and religious conflict, you know. We've seen that most of the accusations arose in the early modern period throughout Europe through interpersonal tensions and conflict. But these were always intensified by wider social and religious conflict, you know, and elites are more likely to take accusations seriously at times of, of conflict, and you'll see this in Scotland. And it makes, you know, people are more likely to, to believe in the devil, for example, who is working in the world at times when the social and the political um, status quo is being underturned. They feel like the chosen people who are being attacked and it makes more sense. And so there's loads of good examples in the early modern period in Ireland and elsewhere where you see this wider social conflict making and intensifying feelings of, of you know um of witchcraft persecution or more likely to happen in another uh, way of putting that you know so the Ellen McGee trial 1711 happens in the small Presbyterian um community in northeast Antrim and this is a community that is under pressure this is a community where they're being you know attacked in their view from, you know, the Anglican ascendancy. Um, the political certainties are undermined as economic uh, pressures are mounting. And then on top of that, uh, political infighting between Whig and Tory. So all this comes together to make the accusation made by an 18-year-old more, you know, um, and believable in a sense. And I think what you get and the 19th century is that it doesn't go away, you know, that it's no longer a claim, but people are still accusing each other of witchcraft. And and I think that throughout the long 19th century, um, although there's changing a little in essence since the late 19th century, livestock, milk and butter are felt to be perhaps more at threat from uh, witches than humans. And you see them arising in small farming communities where the loss of these commodities is keenly felt after the famine and the context um, between disputes between neighbours. And these are arising out of daily squabbles like they did before and the interactions and tensions, but they intensified as well um, due to these tensions. And you could argue as well that Ireland's becoming a more patriarchal society, you know, um, in the late 17th century, and gender tensions are increasing here as well. So, so this thing of like, butter comes up quite a bit or like the topic of butter and, and sort of accusations that witches are undermining butter production could you could you kind of go into more detail about that like what, what exactly are the accusations well i mean well i mean a lot of them you know i mean so i i think that it changes it becomes less polarized in the 19th and 20th century across protestant catholic lines you know before that you know the catholics were more likely to believe just in butter stealing witches and this is witches that um there's sympathetic magic to steal the productiveness from the milk so that the person who steals it using magic gets a plentiful supply of butter and the person, usually the neighbour beside them, <laughs> loses the, the, the butter. So it's magical transference. And then, and this kind of phase more in the 20th century, the idea that, that you magically transform into a hare to steal. Um, and this is more folklorish. You know, you see this more in the folklore rather than the accusations that you transform into a hair to steal milk directly from a cow, you know? And 
you, we say, oh, that's a bit mad, you know. Um, but if we go back to the 19th century, right, this is causing real social and political harm. John Fulton and I wrote an article for Historical Journal on this, right? We found 52 cases involving witchcraft accusations that come before mostly the lower courts, mostly um, petty sessions and police courts. And, you know, a good example of this, you know, in, um, uh, in County Tipperary at the petty sessions in 1895, uh, Thomas Mean, a farmer, um, was charged with assault and uh, William Burke with a reeking hook. Um, Mean was convinced Burke's wife had stolen butters from a cow. He had found her odd times in his land, uh, you know, um, and near his milk <laughs> and near his cows. Uh, and since then, no matter how much he, he turned, it would not be turned into butter, you know. So the Burke was found guilty in order to keep the peace for 12 months and pay sureties of £20. And there's loads of these cases, you know, and sometimes there's it's obvious mental illness when people think that they're being bewitched by the next door neighbor and, and slashed them there's attempted murders and things you know and at least one murder but you you see them having real social and economic uh, consequences these beliefs you know and coming through the court system sure sure and there's a section of your book entitled politicizing witchcraft and could you tell us more about how how does witchcraft become a political issue or is it political in the kind of conventional sense, or is it more just it, it's part of social tensions? Um, well, uh, as I said, you know, it could always be a, a political issue. It can be used as an oppositional tool. So the Whigs and Tories and Neil McGee in 1711 used it to bash each other. And Peter Elmer has argued during the 17th century that, you know, throughout the 17th century, you know, um, different political factions use witchcraft accusation. Um, and witchcraft belief as a way to fight the the, the opposition, you know, basically, you know. Um, for example, I mean, he would argue that in Yall and Cork in 1661, that, you know, um, Florence Newton trial was basically rooted in the fact that it went somewhere was because the people who'd sided with the Cromwellian regime were trying to reintegrate themselves into, you know, uh, restoration society and and hunting out witches was a way to do this, you know. And in the, in the, the modern periods, you know, um, I think what you have is that you you get the historians, for example, and they're they're creating through the throughout the probably from the late 18th century onwards, but definitely in the 18th century with the growth of the provincial press. Uh, and they're creating a narrative of Irish witchcraft. Um, and it's centering on this I idea of Irish exceptionalism. The idea that Ireland didn't have witches or witchcraft belief. And if they did, uh, it was only a few of these uh, and they came from, from without. You know, And this is both unionist uh, and nationalist to, to begin with, you know, um, uh, historians. And, and they see it as largely unaffected. They give the, the, the exceptions, which is the Mary Butters case in 1807, the Kilkenny um, case in, in the 14th century, the York case and the Isle McGee case, you know. And, and this is accompanied by the notion that modern Ireland was disenchanted and untroubled by belief in witch and magic. It's part, and it's grown out of this enlightenment rhetoric, that you know, Ireland is 
is be you know was much better than the rest of them, <laughs> you know, because they killed fifty thousand. You know, we had a handful of trials, so we're much better than you. We had much, you know, and and today, you know, in the eighteenth and the nineteenth century, we're much better, you know, than a lot mm-hmm. of countries because we have moved beyond that as well, you know. So it's creating a kind of national narrative, um, but I think. What I argue is the press, you know, uh, begin to politicise it more, you know, uh, in the, the late 19th and early 20th century. Where these so old narratives... Yeah. Sorry, on you go, I, on you go. No, I was going to ask another question about this issue of, like, politicisation of supernatural beliefs. And there's there's a little bit of a an intriguing mention you make of a belief that Satanism is rife in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Yes. Um, or at least like that. So, so could you tell us more about that? How, how, and was that political too, or was it something totally different? Um, I mean, I suppose it's how you uh, how you define political. Um, but um, so, uh, just let me think about that. So, yeah, I mean, so during the, the, the troubles, I, I think um, you know Richard Jenkins has. Um, who's written a really good um, book about this, you know, um, and what he argues basically is that during the 1970s, um, you you get the special branch um, in, in Northern Ireland and what they try to do is set up black magic sites, you know, um, they try to build up on fears after a, a murder that, that was seen to have, you know, involved um, satanic, uh, practices, you know, um, and he's trying to build on that by setting up these black magic sites, and it's a few officers who do it, and and you know, it's almost like they they're, they're looking for places associated with witchcraft, or and they're looking through witchcraft books to draw magical circles and all the uh, accoutrements and that, and and they look for specific places with these um, these ideas, but also specific places that have strategic importance you know um and to keep kids off the streets but they would have a political you know um you know uh, function as well you could argue because they're, they're actually tarnishing you know paramilitary organizations you know uh, almost with the the, the black magic <laughs> satanism brush you know uh, and so, you know, one of the, the ones is in Isla McGee because the guy who, who's doing it, you know, uh, Richard Jenkins uh, interviewed, said that he knew there was a witch trial in um, Isla McGee. So that was a great place at the Goblin's Cliff to set up one of these things. And there had been a, a kind of Satanist scare in 1961 before this, you know, so he was building on that as well. And, and, and the reason that they could use this as well and, and link historic witchcraft like the fears over modern satanic practices you know um modern satanism is because the kind of linked in it is the idea of this international sect of devil worshippers only in the modern period it's diverse of most of the, the the kind of supernatural you you can be a rationalist you just have to believe that these people are nefarious they're gathering together and doing horrible things you know you don't have to go into the details of the demonic stuff so it's fascinating to think how this is very contemporary and yet they're clearly drawing on this old history of of witch hysterias in places like like mcgee um so 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 how in general does this kind of stuff manifest itself today right like 
what, what does a belief in the supernatural look like in 21st century Ireland or Northern Ireland? Well, I think, I mean, and people like Thomas Waters and a really good book called um, uh, Cursed Britain. Uh, and Owen Davis has been working on it in years. And loads of people, Ronald Hutton, they've all been working on this idea. Again, it's something that anthropologists and religious um, scholars have been looking at as well. Against the idea of the modernity is disenchanted. Well, it's not disenchanted. And you could even, you could split it up into, you know, I don't. But you could split it up into groups of, oh, it's less enchanted or it's more enchanted in the 19th century, and then it's less enchanted. And, and the 1970s onwards, you could, you know, fit into that. You get the rise of demonic possessions uh, and deliverance, um, uh, evangelical groups, and culture as well. I mean, in, in Ireland especially, like everywhere. I mean, can you turn on Netflix without a supernatural program? Mm-hmm. In fact, I want one. I'm sick of them. <laughs> it's my day job, you know. <laughs> so, and I think that, you know, so it's in culture and it's films and it's in books and it's everywhere, obviously, right? But I think also, fairy belief is still, you know, you could say, you know, there's a tension between what you say publicly you believe in and what you privately believe or what is at the edge of your consciousness. So you might say you don't believe in fairies, but would you cut a fairy tree down just in case something happens? I don't believe in the devil, but would you play with a Ouija board? <laughs> so it can, you know, you can deny things, but actually your behavior maybe tells a different tale, you know, and mm-hmm. people might use magical talismans when they don't believe in magic. They might go to a, a magical healer, which they still do all over Ireland. And actually it's, it's essentially magic, you know, if if you think about it, you know, it might have a kind of patina of religiosity about it. You know, there might be a wee prayer or you might do things in threes, but it's still it's still magic. So magical healing, charms and cures are still everywhere. Ghosts, <laughs> belief in ghosts, belief in spiritualism, mediums, fortune tellers, you know, and um, all over Ireland at various levels of professional um, activity. Uh, and at an amateur level, people who do read cards or um, who who do um, tarot readings. And I imagine this stuff went through the roof during the pandemic. It's, it usually does. Again, I mean, maybe something that we didn't say explicitly there, you know, do, during times of crisis and that it is a way to negotiate difficult times you know seeing into the future for example allows you you know to feel better about the future when everything's falling around you perhaps Mm -hmm. you know after the first world war fortune telling takes off contacting uh, and and mediumship as well contacting loved ones or to find out during the the first world war find out about uh, loved ones and what's happening to them and so there's a whole 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 range and you, you can see how 19th and 20th century Ireland fits into this um, pattern of, you know, crisis and war. There's a great statistic. War. There's a great statistic you give in the book that that you often ask your students how many of them believe in fairies, and, and something yeah. like 95% will say they don't, which still means one in 20 openly say that they do, which is a, a fascinating statistic to think about. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's because we move in academic circles, right? And because we, you know, perhaps, you know, take unbelief that we don't disbelieve in unbelief, <laughs> disbelief in witchcraft as a given. When you talk to the mass of the population, when I do talks, people have genuine belief in these things and fear of them. Uh, you know, um, and, and more people than you would think. And again, even when they say they don't, sometimes their behaviour says that they might a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then we, we come to like um, the work that Jenny Butler does in Cork on self-identifying pagan witches. Um, Wicca, Wiccans um, being uh, one of the, the most famous groups of that you know and there is a growing number from this 1970s onwards in ireland of modern pagan witches self-identified witches against the the witches that we are talking about because they are you know usually accused of something bad by other people where this is a closer to a religion um modern pagan witchcraft well it is a religion that's a kind of a question I want to end on. Maybe um, one of the things I was, one of the books I was thinking of as I read your book was David Halpern's book *Intimate Alien*. That's about UFOs, where he makes an argument that I I suspect you'd be fairly sympathetic to um, that that UFOs are a kind of a manifestation of of religion, um, and that that we are not this kind of disenchanted, enlightened rationalists. That actually religion continues into the modern world, but it just manifests itself in different ways. And I'm kind of wondering where where do you conceptually draw the line between a belief in magic, a belief in religion, or folklore? What is the boundary between all these, or is there a boundary? You know, like all even within magic themselves, when you're trying to categorise different types of practice or practitioners, it's so porous and it changes, and it changes over time. Even trying to define what a witch is. It's almost impossible from the medieval period right through, you know, because it changes over time in different places. And I, I, even context, you know, can define what a witch is. So that that's very hard because magic is like that. I mean, I've actually written an article about this um, and it's going to be published in um, an edited collection, uh, OUP's Handbook of Modern Religion by uh, Gladys Daniel and Andrew Holmes, the editors. And, and I argue in this taking together magical belief and practice in 18th and 20th century, well, early 20th century Ireland, isn't a fairy, uh, a fairy faith, you know, a folk, folkloric ancient faith. It's not a folk religion, or it's not even popular religion. You know, I so I, I would argue that it's magic. You know, it has links to official religion and popular um, religious belief, but. It is different, you know, and how would they say it's different? Well, you know, first of all, an awful lot of these religious practices, right, are, you know, throughout, you know, there is popular magic for the most part, whether they come down hard on it or not, official religious groups, you know, whether Catholic or Protestant don't like them. (laughs) They see it as a barrier to real religion, to Christianization, you know, but there's also, as I say, a disparity between rhetoric and instruction and punitive decisive action against clients. They might not do anything about it, and, and that's the case in Ireland, but they definitely, you know, don't like it and tell, you know, the parishioners not to like it. Um, but, you know, p- 
people who actually practice this stuff, and I know that you've said to me before about Holy Wells, and I'll come to that and maybe in a wee minute. But what they do, you know, whether it's um, you're talking about magical healing or divination, you know, or, or fortune telling, or you know, beneficial magic things that you know are seem to do good, but the people use it. That you know appropriates and assimilates certain parts of Christian doctrine, doctrine and devotion. And it allows practitioners and clients to avoid the fact that what they're doing is magical. They're lying to themselves sometimes, you know. It's a patina of religiosity, I call it, you know. Sorry if I didn't pronounce that probably. Um, so they're, they're, they're continuing to, to resort to cure of protective and harmful magic because it's useful on a psychological level, as we said, as an explanatory and a coping mechanisms, you know, in the modern world and challenges lives, as we've said. But it also is a means of, you know, agency and resistance for the disempowered. And, of, you know, women, for example, you know, um, and poorer women, fortune telling can be used in this way. But the, the, these magical practices are kept secret. You know, a charmer will not tell you how he does it because he'll lose its efficacy if he does have his charm or his cure. And it has an inbuilt morality system with it as well. And that sometimes keeps it out of the reach of church authorities, you know. Um, and, and But it goes wrong sometimes, and that's handled by the courts, as we've said. And you'll see loads of uh, magical practitioners and fortune tellers and witches in the courts in the 19th century. So an example of this, you know, this kind of, of line that is actually still magic, whether you say that is or not, that... The fact that, and it has been for centuries, and it's anthropologically magic if you look at what they're doing. But the fact that they're, they're kept secret, you know, as well. But Holy Wells, uh, many are dedicated to saints. There's a lot of uh, devotional activity bound up with popular uh, Catholicism. But they're also used as places to curse people. They're also used as sites of magical healing. And the rites and the ritual that are associated with them are, are more magic. They're not divine healing. They're not channeling God's power into themselves to heal. You know, they're, they're not beseeching, you know, directly, you know, they might be indirectly through saints, but it's it's more magical. And magical healing as well with charms and cures may have a biblical verse, as we said in it, or they might have some incantation, you know, um, that relates to, to a biblical figure. But at its core, is occult magical knowledge and practice. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite well known, I think, among Irish historians that, that the Catholic Church is very adept at, like, adopting and adapting these popular beliefs. It's fascinating to think how Catholicism itself, is in, in kind of in an opposite way, is being adapted by the people who practice them, and that it, there's a, clearly a kind of a dialogue or an exchange going on both in both directions. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um... You know, people, you know, um, lie to themselves all the time. <laughs> you know, I say, you know, I mean, I spoke to, you know, this um, very elderly, um, as a kind of oral history project, this very elderly Presbyterian uh, minister's wife who um, basically um, practised transference magic, but didn't know it was transference magic. Oh, what we did, we took the cow, the disease from one cow and put it on another by trapping the disease 
and a spider. Now, all over the world, that's transference magic, you know? And in certain places, mm-hmm. you could have get done for that, you know? <laughs> but to them, that's no magic. So that's a, a nice kind of thought to end on, that people lie to themselves all the time. <laughs> um... I do. <laughs> in the gym, the gym, the more. <laughs> so uh, Andrew Snedden's book, Representing Magic in Modern Ireland, is out now with Cambridge University Press. It's wonderfully short and readable, and I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Thanks very much.